Well, this morning we're going to be hearing uh, from God's Word from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, and actually, I'm, I made a slight change in there. It's 1 Corinthians 15, but uh, not beginning in verse 9, beginning in verse 12, but still going to verse 20. Um, and in here, the Apostle Paul is writing about what are the things of first importance, what are the things that were uh, the gospel message, which was not from him, but it was delivered to him. And he talks about that it, the, the things of first importance are that Christ was, uh, was crucified and that he was raised according to the scriptures on the third day. And then he begins from there to talk about why it is so important uh, that the resurrection is real, that it, it exists and that it is uh, for us. And so we're going to look at, at that a little bit today, specifically looking at the, the fact that if there is no resurrection, then there is no hope. Before, though, we, we read, uh, let's, let's pray that God's spirit would be at work among us this morning uh, as, we, as we listen. A gracious God, we are gathered here this morning to continue to hear from you. Uh, to hear not just the, the news that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, as we, we heard read from, from John, as it was foretold in the prophet Isaiah, as it's been on our lips this morning, but not just the fact that he has been raised, but why it is important and necessary and life-giving and hope-fulfilling that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Uh, we ask, we beg that your spirit would be with us this morning then, helping us to listen, helping us to focus upon your words in this time, and that he would be making Jesus here raised for us more believable and more beautiful than uh, he was to us when we came in here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is God's word beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter uh, uh, verses 12 through 20. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Amen. Well, the argument of the Apostle Paul, uh, the argument that addresses here the question of whether or not there is resurrection. And if there isn't resurrection, then Jesus never rose from the dead. And if he isn't risen from the dead, then this is what it means. Not just theoretically, but with very real implications for life. And for Paul, the resurrection isn't a myth. It's history. It's factual. See, myths are stories that have no real power over life other than helping to form cultural values or to instill morality within us. Right? Take, for instance, the myth, the legend of King Arthur. 
Now, scholars have debated for, for years whether or not a real Arthur figure existed in early Britain around the, the 4th or 5th centuries. And if he did exist, the reality was probably that he didn't have a, a legion of knights sitting around a round table, or that he wielded the, the mythical sword Excalibur, that there was no Lady of the Lake onwards, right? But whether or not King Arthur was real doesn't matter. Because for those that read his stories, the power is in the tales of courage and of chivalry. But other than inspiration, what bearing does that have upon the, the world? It doesn't matter whether or not King Arthur was a real historical figure. It has zero bearing upon, upon the implications of, of any one of you here. And even for, for people who live in modern Britain today, it's the same way. It has zero implications. It doesn't matter because the power of myth and legends doesn't reside in historical fact that has real implications. And many people treat the resurrection in a similar way, not as a historical fact, but as a myth or a legend. Did it really happen or not? Well, it doesn't really matter. And they approach it this way for different reasons. One is that it's incompatible with my philosophical ideas or worldview. In other words, it doesn't matter if there's a bodily resurrection because the soul matters more than the body. The spiritual is more important than the physical. And the body, after all, is just a prison house for the soul. So resurrection actually serves to limit us, not to free us. And why would Jesus put his, his true inner self back into confinement? Another reason why, why people approach it this way is because it's fantastical. It's based on the presupposition that things like this don't exist, and therefore it cannot happen. Or even this, too, it has no bearing on my life. Why are we even asking this question? Does it really matter if there's resurrection, let alone if Jesus actually rose from the dead? But for as many reasons why people have for rejecting the resurrection, there are just as many ways as some uh, may hold to some idea, but actually reject it functionally. Right? There are some who affirm the resurrection but might reject it functionally. Maybe some because they, they reject or some people might reject philosophies which deny the resurrection but they also find themselves to be more influenced by those philosophies than they'd like to think. Right? Believing that the resurrection isn't bodily but spiritual. That real hope for humanity isn't in bodily resurrection but in our spirits only being lifted to God. And with the conception of eternal hope being spirits floating in the ether, devoid of a resurrected body and in a renewed physical world. Right? Not uh, that Jesus came to uh, uh, only save the soul and the immaterial, not the body and the, or, and the, and the, the material. Or some would also say, well, Christ's resurrection isn't true or literal. It's not a, there's no historical event. And the power lies in the, the story that inspires us. Or similarly, well, remembrance is resurrection. We remember Jesus and he continues on to live today in our hearts and minds and our memories, just like King Arthur. Well, the Apostle Paul was once a skeptic and he too rejected the resurrection. He lived even as a contemporary of Jesus and likely was even in Jerusalem on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. And he spoke and he wrote to an audience of skeptics. He ministered to both learned Jews and Greeks in the Roman world. And so we need to abandon the idea that these people that, that Paul was writing to, that these people in the ancient world were pre-modern dupes who would have fallen for anything. 
Just because they lived in a different time period doesn't make them any more or less fools or more or less prone to believe things than us today. Case in point, social media. How many things do people believe needlessly and strangely because they've read it on social media? Well, Paul spent his days, though, reasoning in the renowned uh, philosophical and educational centers of the great cities of the day. And in this letter that Paul wrote, he was writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth was a city uh, that was located at a major intersection in the Greek world. And so ideas, worldviews, philosophies, all of them converged here. And it was full of people with different beliefs and even full of skeptics. In one sense, it was a place not unlike the Pacific Northwest. So when we read of his arguments and his reasonings regarding resurrection, they aren't merely for an ancient world. They are for us to consider also. And he believed deeply in the resurrection, the notion of resurrection, and specifically of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He believed it enough to stake his life on it. So the resurrection isn't a myth with perhaps a kernel of truth that then grew into something legendary. It isn't a sentiment that has power in the remembrance of Jesus' life. The fact that Paul was a contemporary of Jesus and he firmly believed in it as a convert that kills all of those objections. The resurrection is a historical event. And as a real historical event, it has significance for altering the trajectory of human history. And so our thesis this morning is just simply this. Resurrection is of primary importance. Enough so that without the resurrection, there is no hope. Right? It's of primary importance. And if there is no resurrection, then there is no hope. There's no hope in the future. There's no hope for the present. And there has never been hope in the past either. And so beginning here. First, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. No future hope. All right, everyone yearns for hope. The question is, what does this hope look like? What shape does it take? Is hope something that comes to me now and it takes care of my needs and concerns in that moment and in whatever situation? Well, the Bible talks about a hope that goes far beyond just the now and it resolves them for eternity. It doesn't dismiss our concerns that we experience now. It affirms very real tragedy and suffering and difficulty. It doesn't dismiss their, their, their validity or their reality. But it also looks at them in light of eternity. It sets forth a hope that transcends the way that we experience life at the moment. All of which here, all of the sufferings, the trials, uh, the, the difficulties are symptoms that, of, of, of a greater problem. That life is inherently wrecked and it's fallen. That death is a shroud lying over everything and it keeps us in the darkness. And addressing merely the present is to treat only the symptoms while ignoring the disease. Acknowledging that there is real suffering and real dis-ease that it causes, but without a hope that extends much further or deeper than the right now. But Jesus, though, offers something different. Jesus offers resurrection. Real hope which addresses the real issue. Death. The resurrection is the beginning of something new, a hope that extends far beyond the life as we know it now because the enemy, because death is defeated. The God-man, Jesus Christ, put it down by emerging from the tomb. That's the victory of Easter morning. Death and all its power has been overcome. 
The futility that death brings in our lives is suddenly overshadowed. There's now more than living the uphill battle of life and then dying. There's real hope because death isn't the end. There's hope that transcends the way that we know things right now. The decay and the death that we see all over the world doesn't have the last word for us. And the Bible doesn't just talk about the death of humanity. It talks about the death of the cosmos. The decay of the earth. The way things fall apart in society. The degradation of justice and goodness and truth. Everything that we yearn for. See, resurrection isn't an escape from the physical. It's not an overcoming the material. If so, then Jesus wouldn't have been raised in a physical body on that morning. It wouldn't matter if the tomb were empty. His body could have remained dead while his soul continued on. But it's also not being more comfortable with our physical selves. It is renewal of our whole selves, both the spirit and the body. Resurrection is a renewal of the physical. God made all things. He made the material world. He made both our physical and our spiritual selves. And he doesn't elevate one over the other. The soul isn't any more or less important than what the body is. So resurrection isn't escape. It's not freeing the soul from the body. Eternal life apart from the body is incomplete. Only when the body and the soul are put back together is wholeness restored. Resurrection gives the hope of our whole selves being put back together properly. But resurrection is also renewal. It's setting everything right, remaking all things. God cares for the whole person, and he redeems the whole person to live in a renewed whole world. Right, we can look around and acknowledge the beautiful yet broken characteristics of the physical world in which we live in. Yet the answer, though, that resurrection gives isn't escape or to set our souls free from it. The answer is to remake it all, to renew it. And resurrection is the cosmic renewal of all things by God, of which the body here is just a part of it. And the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, is the first fruits of that renewal. The first fruits of a harvest are the very beginnings that are brought in, right? They represent the goodness of the entire harvest. What's the fruit going to look like this year? What's the expected bounty? Well, look at the first fruits. See the goodness of the fruit, the abundance of the, the beginning of the harvest. And those of you who garden, you know what this is. Those first tomatoes that come in and ripen. Those apples which turn from blossoms into fruit and then become ready to pick. You collect those, those first fruits from the plant or you, you pluck them from the tree and you take a bite. Oh, it's delicious. It's going to be a great year. It's going to be a wonderful, beautiful harvest. Because the rest of the harvest, the good things to come are seen in those first fruits. And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of, the, of the, 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 the resurrection of all things. The entire harvest looks like Jesus' resurrection body. Renewal, glory, life uh, untainted and eternal. And free from death. Unable to be touched by death. If Jesus is raised, then death has no final say. It may touch us now in this life. But resurrection cries out that this life isn't everything. And the decay and death of the world doesn't have the last word. 
See, it's a future that's as secure as Jesus' resurrection body, untouchable and, and held secure as he himself is in the heavenly places right now in his resurrection body. But second, though, if there's no resurrection, there's not just no future hope. If there's no resurrection, there's no present hope also. Right? The resurrection has future implications. It stakes a claim on what's to be expected. But yet its implications can't be just simply relegated to, to the future. Future expectations always affect the present life. And in this, in this case, it affects the implications of, of faith. Right? What we are anticipating affects what we're waiting for and how we wait for it. Anticipating resurrection means that we live oriented towards the hope to come. It's like a compass. It sets the heading for how we live and it directs us to hope even if we're having a difficult time finding our way. It tells us that life as we experience right now is in everything and it yearns for Jesus and it longs for his resurrection to come and to make everything new. And Paul, an ardent believer of all this, he knew the logical pr progression. If there's no resurrection, then there's no future hope. And if there's no future hope, then a life oriented towards belief in that hope is vain and meaningless. It means that the compass is set to an entirely different heading and it's leading us along to some place that doesn't exist. If there's no resurrection, then everything, Paul says, everything that you've believed in is invalidated because you've lived according to something false. And by extension, everything that you've given yourself to that is oriented around Jesus' resurrection is invalidated. The way of life that some of you have lived, profitless, vanity, and for nothing more than perhaps a sense of feeling good in the moment. And the way that some of you have suffered yet borne it up in hope and have not thrown in the towel, then there's been no point to it. And that goes for me too. Because at best, I've been duped and I'm leading you along. Or worst case scenario, I'm a charlatan. But for as awful as the feeling is when you recognize the loss and the futility of having your life been exposed, that's only a sliver. Because no resurrection means that we are still in our sins and they cannot be taken care of. The gospel message of Jesus says that he was crucified in the place of sinners. That he himself identified with the guilty. That he was crucified among thieves. And that he hung in the place of the guilty to bear all of our offenses and all of our sins. His death took all of our wrongs, all of our failures, and everything that we've done to offend God and put ourselves at odds with him. Every way that we have failed to love him or failed to love our neighbor with our whole selves was put upon Jesus Christ to free those who trust in him from their, from their, their condemnation. And so God takes sin seriously and he re takes redemption seriously. So seriously that he would do the only thing that could remove those sins and satisfy his justice. And so trying to meet God's approval is never ending. If you want to be approved by God, if you want to live to be approved by God, the Apostle Paul here writes in other places uh, throughout the New Testament, he says, good luck with that. But approval comes in the person of Jesus who lived and who died and lives again. He was faithful in all of his life. He was perfectly obedient, obedient all the way to death on a cross. 
And even though he's the son of God incarnate, Jesus, though, didn't just raise himself up by his own power. It was by the will of God, the Father, and by the, the Holy Spirit. It was God's vindication of Jesus that he had indeed lived perfectly faithful and was deserving of life. And so the resurrection is more than just a validation of everything Jesus had ever said. It is God's declaration and his stamp of approval upon him. And yet if there's no resurrection, then what does that mean? If there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been vindicated. And we who have trusted him are still in our sins and we are still without God's approval. There is no present hope for, for escape from our guilt and our condemnation. The life of Jesus doesn't have the final say then. Our record of sin, our history of wrongs, all of that instead would say who we are. And if that's the case, then those of us who believe in the resurrection are to be pitied most of all. Because you've lived your life according to a lie. Everything that you have staked your hopes upon, everything that you've lived for, everything that you have trusted in or believed as true, it's all been a lie. And it's all been meaningless. A few years back, my wife and I uh, were on this spree of watching documentaries of, on Netflix of people who had been caught up in cults. And these documentaries told the stories of those people who, over time, slowly began to realize that they were living according to a horrible lie, a deceiving lie. And then the sense of shock and disillusionment when they would eventually escape or go clear from this cult, it was heartbreaking. They felt betrayed, they felt lost, and they were trying to pick up the broken pieces of their lives, overcome by the sadness of so much that they had given themselves to, and then that instead that they had missed out upon so much of the world. See, if there's no future resurrection hope, then how can we have hope in the present? What hope is there in our sufferings and struggles? Everything awful that you go through, every instance of suffering you know, it's just the status quo. Life is brutal with moments of temporary relief, but then you die. To quote Wesley from The Princess Bride, life is pain. Anyone who says otherwise is just trying to sell you something. And you've missed out upon all the distractions to numb yourself from the suffering or to take comfort in instead or to indulge yourself in, and you've missed out. And we, of all people then, Paul says, are the most to be pitied. And all that would be true except for one thing. Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. Because there is resurrection hope for the future, there is resurrection hope for us in the present. And there is real meaning in the resurrection of Jesus. There is real meaning and hope in life now. And there is real comfort to be had. Real comfort that we can hang our hats on. Real comfort that we can cling to in even the darkest moments around us. And perhaps this has been highlighted no better than thinking about the events last week of the shooting in Nashville. As students and faculty at a school that is affiliated with, uh, with, with one of our sister churches here were mercilessly gunned down. And what hope is there in a situation like that? What hope or comfort is there when you have people... Parents who have, who have suffered the deepest loss, the loss of a child by senseless violence. What hope for those, those families of the faculty was there for something like that? Friends, the hope is resurrection. 
The hope is the life of Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. That's the hope that they have trusted in. That those children aren't just gone and snuffed out in death. That they are experiencing the first fruits of Christ's resurrection even right now. Friends, there's comfort for those families. There's comfort and hope that for any parent, uh, that any parent can have, uh, can have facing the violent loss of a child, the comfort that they can have is resurrection. And that Jesus Christ is making all things new. And death does not have hold over a child who is slain like that. The risen Christ is holding them tightly right now and will keep them until they are raised also with him bodily as well. But third though, if there's no resurrection, there's no past hope. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope for us in the present. And if there's no hope for us in the present, then there's no hope for those who came before us. If Christ hasn't been raised, then the, the the, their, their belief was also in vain. They were always hopeless. And like us, they lived to live lives of vanity. They gave themselves for nothing. Their faith was futile too. And they succumbed to the same fate of the status quo, just like all of us will. Our dead ancestors then have faced a silent fate. And if indeed there is no vindication of Christ and of ourselves in him, then it's an even worse fate. As the future, though, presses into the present with its implications, though, so also the past pushes into the present. Right? The present is sandwiched in between the, the future and the past. And the same old story of the world for us right now just continues onwards with no change. Birth, life, death, and emptiness. And it continues un, un, uninterrupted for those who are still to come. It's the same story that have, has those before us would have been lived the same story that, we, the story that we are living, the same story for our children after us. Is there anything that we can think of to do to actually reverse, uh, to, to reverse all of this, right? From what hasn't and, uh, that one, that from what hasn't been able to happen, is there any way that we can stop or interrupt the story? There is, not from us, but because Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the interruption of the story. Without hope. The cycle of suffering and death has been broken. Renewal and hope has broken through with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and all things will be made well in the glory of his resurrection body. The suffering and pain of human history has an end. There is a finality to it. The resurrection says so. Jesus says so, and he will bathe everyone who believes in him with his resurrection power to be with him in a world full of his resurrection power. History has been altered. The trajectory has been changed. And so here's the question then. The question for all of us to ponder and consider, no matter who you are, uh, whether if you've been walking in the faith for a long time, whether if you're new here and this is all strange to you, whether you have professed a faith in the resurrection, but you even have doubts yourself. Is there a resurrection? That's the question. Is there a resurrection? Has Jesus been raised? And if you say no, here's a second question then to honestly consider. Why? Are you already predisposed to, to not believing that resurrection is possible? I know it's not something that any of us have ever witnessed, but does that make it not so? 
Does that make it impossible? See, this isn't something that merely weak-minded people hold to or have been irrationally convinced of or that can't happen because we say it can't happen. Some of the greatest minds in human history have believed in the literalness of the resurrection. Some of the great philosophers in Western history, people like Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, titans of the mind, scientists from a diversity of fields and eras, all the way from Copernicus to Blaise Pascal to Francis Bacon to James Clerk Maxwell. But see, ultimately, though, the resurrection doesn't revolve around uh, science. It's not a philosophical question. It's a historical question. And if you don't believe that the tomb was empty on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, then you must prove an alternate and a more believable narrative to explain all of the undeniable historical events that happened, that can be agreed upon in the first few centuries. I mean, for one thing, who was it that first went to the tomb? We heard it this morning. It was women. And you know what? This isn't saying anything other than just what it was in that time period. The testimony of women would not have held up in court. It was regarded as not very trustworthy. But so you have the the reports of the first people for the tomb from people who weren't considered trustworthy. And then the remaining 11 disciples of Jesus, they believed that the tomb was empty. Because if not, then they kept up a lie. And why would those men, unpopular because they followed a crucified Messiah, why would they keep up that lie? They actively instead worked to spread it. They gave up their lives for it, even even all the way until death, among a hostile Jewish social-religious culture that was offended by it. You have to give a motive to that. And then you have to continue to explain how in this hostile culture that actively persecuted them, that thought that the message of a resurrected Jesus was offensive, it took immediate root and exploded. Among people who weren't dumb, they had the same reasons to not believe as we do. And yet still, masses of people, some of whom had, had even seen Jesus crucified, they suddenly had a change of heart, and they repented, and they believed in the resurrected Lord. So you have to find an, also an alternate explanation of how Paul, one of the most ardent Jewish persecutors of the faith, had his heart also conquered by the raised Jesus, enough to change him into being one of the most outspoken apologists. You have to explain how The news of the empty tomb then continued to spread across the entire known world, across the Roman Empire, despite hostility and persecution. You have to explain how it continued to grow and grow, how it actually grew beyond the expanses of the empire and went into eastern Africa, further east into Persia and India. News of a man who rose from the dead and people from foreign cultures giving themselves to that. And then within the Roman Empire, it didn't grow among the elite class. Its deepest growth that it had was particularly among women and slaves, usually who were considered the weakest in society. Christianity was even publicly mocked as a religion for women and for weak people. But despite all of this, it continued to grow and grow until eventually it changed the course of the the whole Roman Empire in just a matter of three centuries. See, all of those are undeniable historical facts. You have to reckon with those in some way. And if you're going to disregard the resurrection event, then you have to provide some alternate narrative, a more believable narrative, to explain all of those historical happenings. there. Jesus wasn't actually raised. But don't just stop there. 
If you want to hold on to some vestige of hope amid all of the suffering in the world, then you must also come up with an alternative narrative that simultaneously gives true hope. Or else history is meaningless for the present and the future. Friends, the resurrection is a true story. And like all good stories, it stokes our imaginations. And the true story of Christ having risen from the grave, reversing the trajectory of the world from suffering into hope, that's a beautiful story. And that gets our imaginations to run wild. It's a beautiful story. As we see, it's also a believable story. The story of a God who saw us in our death, our sin, our misery, and he gave his very son crucified and risen to give us life and glory unlike the world has ever seen. Life and glory unimaginable. All praise to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, the words of the Apostle Paul are not just his words. They are your words inspired by your Holy Spirit and they are so true. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope for us. But the good news that we celebrate today is that Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. That he has reversed the trajectory of the world. That he has turned the curse upside down, taking it upon himself and then causing glory and new life to burst upon this world. And so give us hope. Give us a hope amid our sufferings. Give us hope that's not just oriented to the future, but a hope that's orient that, that looks to, uh, to everything going on in us right now and points us to the hope that is in Jesus Christ to come. Open our eyes and our hearts. Perhaps this is the first time that we've ever really considered the resurrection. Father, by your spirit, would you open us up to that, to think clearly about it, to have hearts that are softened and hearts that love and believe. And prepare our hearts now as we approach the table that the risen Lord Jesus prepares for us to strengthen us in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.